we're going to open up our Bibles to John chapter 16 and get into uh, the words of Jesus. So if you want to go there with me, John chapter 16 this morning. And uh, as you go there, we are in the the last night of Jesus' life as he's talking to his disciples about many, many different things. And uh, as, I, as I thought about that this morning, you know, we've been in this building, we, we moved into this building in 2008, we've been here, what's that, do the math for me somebody, too early, too early for math, you guys are like, seven, all right, good, thank you Ken, seven years, all right, we've been in this building for seven years. When we first came to this building, it looked a lot different and functioned a lot differently than it does now. Uh, those of you who were around in 2008, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Um, it didn't look pretty like this, you know, they were, there were um, not, none of these, you know, nice uh, decorations or whatever. Uh, we didn't have projectors going on up here. Uh, the lights were a lot harsher. If you remember, they were those, those lights you turned on and you wait for 10 minutes for them to like, you know, that kind of light. Um, and uh, we didn't have a stage like this, and we didn't have a, a sound system. We put a lot of time and energy. First couple of years, we shared it with the, the synagogue that owned the building, and then when we bought it, we really started putting work in. The lobby wasn't as big as it is now. Um, that We didn't have a resource room. We didn't have a coffee room. So a lot of things have been changed over the times. But one of the things that we noticed pretty early on was that whoever was up here talking um, – looked like one of those people at a campfire with a flashlight to their face, trying to look scary, because it was like, you know, it was all shadows and stuff. What we had were lights that came right down on you, but we didn't have anything on the front of people. So we decided that we would get really, really technical, and we would add a couple of, like, spotlights so that people didn't look, you know, like they were telling a monster story up here so that you could actually see people's face, which sounds like a great idea. First Sunday I got up to speak, I got up here and I went like, wow, those are really bright lights. Uh, and it kind of blinded me. And, and I, for a while, I couldn't see anybody here because all you could see, you know how when you notice, I don't know, some of you guys who sing up here and, and perform, like the first thing you're like is what? Your eye is drawn to the brightness of the light. And as soon as you look at it, you can't see. Yeah. All, all you see when you look at that is like dot. You know, I see a bright dot now out here with all of you people. And so it took a little bit, but now when I get up, I almost don't look at those at all. I kind of have adapted to the place where my eyes don't go up there so that I see people. Because when I'm looking at the lights, I can't see you. Now, does that mean that you disappeared, that you're not here anymore because I can't see you? It means that something has blinded me and I can no longer look the same way that I did before. And so after a little while, what I learned to do is avoid the light and see the people. But at first, it was hard not to be blinded by the light. And the reason I share that with you is because it's the way that I want to describe what happens in our lives. Um, What happens when life comes at you bright and harsh, and it can blind you, you know? When, When things pile up on you, when it's all that you can see... The negative things about life can blind you to the reality of life. It can stop you from being able to see what's really happening in your life. As a matter of fact, there is even science to this kind of stuff. Did you know that um, it, they have studied to find it takes 10 compliments to offset one criticism? Did you know that? So that means after the service, 
10 of you have to come up and say good job for, to offset the one person who came up and said, you know what you did wrong today? You know? I guess it means 10 of you have to stay awake for every one of you that falls asleep, something like that, right? Like 10 positives to one negative. The negative is so loud. Just by the, the nature of being negative, by the nature of what it does to us inside, the, the, the way it stirs us up. And so there's something about the negative stuff of life in general that blinds us. It seems like it's louder. It seems like it's bigger. It takes away our ability to see things clearly. It doesn't mean that the other stuff vanishes. But sometimes it's hard to see. Have you been looking at the light and missing everything else? Are you blinded by the light? Do you ever get to the place where you can see past the blinding light? What Jesus talks about today with his disciples, the passage we're going to look at, is this amazing idea, this amazing concept that I don't even know. I hope that this kind of digs into you, that this is a seed that's planted that grows over the course of this week and this month and this year, because this is an amazing truth. He talks about the idea of grief turning into joy. Grief turning into joy. I don't know if that's just a tagline to you, if that's just a, you know, a nice little poetic flourish that, yeah, grief turns to joy. But here's what I want to talk about with you. If you're sitting here today overwhelmed by life, or you've ever felt that blinding light of life in your face before, you can feel stuck in pain, in in hardship, in trial. What would it mean to you, and or, what would it mean to the people that you love, that you care about, that you watch get blinded by the negatives of life, to believe that in Jesus' hands... All of that will turn to joy. What would it mean? How would we be different as people if we believed that? Or will we just stay blinded by the grief and think that's all there is to see? So start with me in John chapter 16. We're going to start at verse 16, and we're going to eventually go all the way down to verse 24. But we're going to start at verse 16 and just go down to verse 19 to to begin this. And here's what it says. In a little while, Jesus is speaking here, in a little while you will see me no more. Then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while. We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? All right, so did you, did you notice something about those verses as we read it? They were kind of like repetitive, weren't they? kind of over and over and over again. And, and repetitive, explicitly repetitive, like we said the exact same thing again and again. That kind of makes you perk up, and if you, especially when you're in the Bible. If you see something repeated over and over again in, the, in, in very short order, there's something about that. And the emphasis here is on the fact that Jesus had said something, and, and it was captured, it was burned into their memory. John is writing here probably 60 years after Jesus after this happened, 60 years later. Do you remember something happened 60 years ago? Like 60 years later. 
He, and he's writing it, and he writes this, this phrase that clearly got burned into their heads that night in a little while. And it's a, it's a phrase, the statement doesn't seem to make any sense to them. It confuses them. And it all focuses on this idea of in a little while. After a little while. In a little while, you won't see me. And then after a little more while, you will see me again. And so as repeated over and over again, it means this was a really a difficult thing for them to get their head around. There's a couple reasons for that. First of all, this is a kind of a way of talking about interpreting the Bible. I'm just going to give you this as a, this is a freebie. This is kind of like a college thing. So if you don't really care for that kind of stuff, you could just ignore this and we'll come back to like what it means for your life. But when you're interpreting the Bible, um, one of the realities is the Bible's filled with prophecy. You know, there, there are books in the Bible about what's going to happen in the future. A lot of the stuff that was written in the Bible was written about stuff that was going to happen that hadn't happened yet. There's a lot of prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and, and the, they got fulfilled as Jesus was born and, and died and all that stuff. So there's prophecy in the Bible. One of the things that you can find out if you, if you get deep into the idea of prophecy is that prophecy has often multiple fulfillments. It is not something that is just once and done. A lot of prophecy has what we call foreshadowing or multiple advents of it. In other words, it doesn't just happen once, it happens more than once. It's one of the reasons that they were so confused about Jesus because they saw the prophecies about the Messiah as being the Messiah and the kingdom, the kingdom on earth, deliverance from the enemies of Israel. What they missed is the fact that that prophecy was kind of like more than once. There was a a coming of Messiah, and then there is a returning of Messiah, and they didn't quite see that there. There's a lot of that going on. I think as you go through the book of Revelation, um, you know, it's about this future end of the world kind of thing. You know, but a lot of scholars believe that this is stuff that happens over and over again as, as kind of like tastes and, and of the same nature as what's going to be at the end of the world. So you think back to times in our history, in the history of the world, when there was awful suffering for the people of God, when people were evil and wickedness seemed to overwhelm everything. You think about the first couple centuries, you could think that as they read Revelation, they thought, it's coming true, right? And you could think about times like during the Middle Ages when the people of God really were persecuted and it was like, well, this is coming true and there is antichrist. There is this force against Christ. It wasn't the ultimate fulfillment, but it was like an interim fulfillment of it. And so people think that even, you know, even in the, the past century, you think about times like World War II and, and Hitler and, and that, that, that kind of like destructive genocidal tendency, which seems to be replicating itself around the world today, where there's all these unimaginable atrocities. We're getting better and better as a world, more and more civilized, except we're not at all. You know, we're heading more and more towards the power of man trying to determine the future of mankind for myself in selfishness. And so you see us heading towards it. And so there are these, these uh, you know, cropping ups over and over again of prophecy. And so Jesus talks about, I'm going to go after a little while, and then I'm going to come back. You're going to, I'm not going to be visible to you, and then I will be visible to you. So what's he talking about? There's a couple different ways. It's, it's understandable that the disciples are confused because it's a little bit hard for us to even understand what he's talking about, and we know the rest of the story. He could be talking about, and he has talked about, I'm leaving, I'm going away. And in talking about going away, he's been talking about his death. And so this is the night of his betrayal. This is the night of the Last Supper. Within 24 hours, Jesus is going to be dead. 
I'm going away. So after a little while, you won't see me. But then after a little while, you'll see me again. Resurrection, right? So it could be talking about that. It also could be talking about after a little while, I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to ascend. And then after a little while after that, the Spirit's going to come. And so uh, you won't see me, but then in a different way, you will see me because the Spirit will speak of me. It could be talking about the fact that I'm going away, but after a little while, I will return. And he's talking about the second coming. So there's, there's a couple different ways you could look at that. How do we get to what does he mean here? What's he talking about with his disciples? Because he's really going to try to give them something that, uh, that can be transformational for them. And we'll see that one of those makes more sense than the other, but it, it's really easy to see how they could be confused. So they're going like, I don't get it. Jesus says, in a little while you won't see me, and then in a little while you will see me. How do we, you've been saying you're going, and you've been saying you're going to die. How will we see you again if you're going to die? And what do you mean, a little while? What's a little while? How long is a little while? I guess that's kind of a relative thing, isn't it? How long is a little while? How long is a little while for you? Remember that this all kind of relates as they say, Not just a little while you will see me, won't see me, and then you will, but also it's connected to the end of verse 17, because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father. And if you remember over the last couple chapters, we've been talking about the coming of the Spirit, which is going to happen when Jesus goes to the Father. So we get a clue about what Jesus is talking about there. When I go to the Father, then it's going to be a little while you won't see me because I'm going to go away. And then a little while after that, you're going to see me again. So Jesus, he hears them talking. They haven't asked him the question. They, he hears them talking. And so what does he do? He steps in and he addresses their confusion. He addresses their unasked questions. He knows about it. He knows they don't get it. He's been teaching them for three years about this stuff. Tomorrow is, is the end of it. Tomorrow it's done, it's over, it's finally happened. He's been teaching them for three years. They're on the last night. If you've been teaching somebody for three years, and it's the deadline, what's your reaction to they still don't get it? A hammer? What, what, you know what I'm saying? Like, you're frustrated. Sometimes with God, we do that. We go, well, this is what my reaction would be, so that must be what God's reaction is. Notice what Jesus' reaction is. He's been teaching them for three years. They don't get it. They're looking at each other like, what's he mean in a little while and going to the Father? And what's this mean? So Jesus goes, let me explain it to you. Does that mean anything to you? Are you confused sometimes by what God is doing in your life? Do you feel like you just never can quite get your hands around it? And you're like, God, I know you're like tired of me asking. Because I'm tired of me asking. I know you're frustrated with me. I know you're irritated with me. Do we project onto God what we would do? Because here's what Jesus did. All right, guys, listen up. I know what you're asking. Listen, let me, let me talk to you. And he gives them some words that are powerful and deep. But he gives them words that aren't in frustration. And he gives them that words that aren't in, I'm over it. What's wrong with you? I think that's an important thing for you to remember. 
as we deal with God, as we deal with our confusion about what God might be doing in our lives. Okay, so now what I want to do is I just want to read the next verse because after he says that, hey, I get it, you're confused. Then he says this, verse 20. He says, I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Jesus' explanation to them is something that if I had thought ahead, I would have printed out on little things and given this to each of you. Your grief will turn to joy. I pray that you take this with you, that this is something that absolutely changes the way you interact with the bright, glaring lights of life. Because this is the reality. Jesus is talking about the redeeming power of God. That God is someone who steps into our life, into the mess of our life, and transforms it. This is why there is no middle ground on Jesus. This is why you can't hang out somewhere like, I'm cool with Jesus, I hope he's cool with me. Like, you can't either. This is the kind of stuff that Jesus does. It's true, it's possible, it's normal, or it isn't. Either there's hope or there isn't. And you've got to decide where you're going to live. And Jesus talks about it by saying this. He starts off with this, verily, verily, truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. And that's a formula he's used. I think this is like the 24th time in the Gospel of John he's used that formula. And he uses it in the middle of a discussion to say, hey, if you're tuned out, tune back in. If you've missed it, this is important, this is reliable, this is true. And here's what he says when he gets their attention. Here's what he says. You're going to weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. What he's saying is that the very thing that makes you sorrow will be the cause of their joy. What breaks your heart What crushes you will be a cause for other people to celebrate, to party, to rejoice. Do you know that feeling? Their sorrow was certainly going to be in some part over the next 24 hours for the way Jesus would die. I don't think we can quite grab a hold of the emotional component of watching Jesus suffer and die like that. I mean, have you ever seen The Passion of the Christ? That's, an emo- that's draining emotionally to watch that. And the reality is, that's probably light on what Jesus suffered. As hard as that is to watch, it's probably light. And so they are going to weep and mourn. It is going to be an emotionally traumatic experience. They're going to lose their leader. They're going to lose their friend. And it's all going to happen because of the betrayal of someone in their midst. Their lives will feel like they have fallen apart. They are going to weep and mourn. But even more than that, there was this dream that they held together as a company. It was a dream that seemed so close they could touch it on Sunday the week before. The kingdom of God, Messiah, come to save us and rescue us. And over the next 24 hours, it is all gone, destroyed. They would weep. They would sorrow. They would feel emotionally devastated like there was no reason to ever smile again. At the same time, the world would rejoice. The world would declare victory, triumph 
over this troublemaker, over this movement that was going to upset the whole way of their life. The world would rejoice while they weep. And our world does that all the time, folks. Our world loves to win. They love to trample out what is good. They love to replace truth with lies. They love to to change light into darkness and darkness into light. And they love to rejoice over it. You may be on the receiving end of that sometimes. It may be that as you look at this world and, and, and consider it in the cause of Christ, it breaks your heart, and it should, for the wickedness that's out there, for the abuse that's taking place behind doors in homes that should never take place, for people that are getting broken, taken advantage of, wounded, destroyed, for societies that are shifting to a godless viewpoint of life and the hope that drains out of our world when you take away the Creator should break our heart. But the world celebrates it as progress, as as intellect triumphing over fantasy and myth. Well, here's what Jesus says. The world will rejoice while we weep, but their victory will only be temporary. They don't think that. Do you? Jesus says their victory can only possibly be temporary. You see, we live in a different zone. We live with a different viewpoint of this life. We live life differently. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you live this life differently. You live by the agenda of your maker. You live by the direction in following your Savior. And that shows up in the way that you make your choices, in the attitudes that you hold, in the sacrifices you're willing to make, in the values that you espouse, and in demeanor, the very way that you carry yourself. You live life differently. The world rejoices, but you do not. We choose to follow and see life differently. We choose to go a different path. Not that we don't know how hard life can be and that we don't know how pleasurable life can be. But we have a different idea about what life's about. And because of that, their victory can only be temporary. Jesus says this. When we look at hardship and suffering and pain, when we look at grief and mourning, here's what he says. Your grief will be turned into joy. Now, what does that mean? Let me ask you to think about that. What does that mean? Your grief will be turned into joy. I came up with two things. Maybe you came up with more, but I came up with two things. First of all, it means deliverance. For the people of God, any pain, any suffering, any grief is temporary. By definition, If we are the people of God, what we suffer in this life and on this world will come to an end. We will be delivered from grief into joy. Your sorrowing, it will end. Your hurts, they will heal. Suffering in this life will always be limited. We use a phrase a lot uh, in, in our house, this too shall pass. You know? doesn't feel like it will, but I know from my life that it will pass. Eventually, this zone of life will pass. I'm overwhelmed, I'm wrung out, I'm worn out, but this too will pass. It will fade away because eternal deliverance awaits all who have trusted Jesus. 
It is a guaranteed of being relieved of the stress and pressure of this life and this world by being delivered into the presence of our Savior in heaven forever. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning, you don't have the promise of deliverance. You have the offer of deliverance. Jesus comes and says, I want you to know it, but you're not guaranteed it. Without Jesus, the sorrow and grief that you taste in this life is only a foretaste of the suffering that awaits. You can't know that without faith. You'll even fall for the the lie that death from this life is relief from suffering or that escape is what you really need. Believers, God calls us to embrace suffering. He calls us to choose suffering. He says, Jesus says, If you want to follow me, take up your cross. Any any clearer description of suffering? Take up your cross. How often? Daily. So this isn't like, okay, take up my cross. I'll do that next year. Take up your cross daily and follow me. We are called to suffering. A regular diet of it. How can someone live in a norm where they embrace suffering? Here's how. You believe in deliverance. You see past the bright lights of right now, and you know that there's more than just what's blinding you at the moment. You believe that deliverance is absolutely certain. Do you believe that? The degree to which you believe that will be the degree to which you believe that you can endure suffering, that suffering can be good, that suffering can be endured. But here's the other thing. Not just deliverance. Your grief will be turned into joy. Not just deliverance, like it turns a corner and goes from grief to joy. But here's what I see, especially as you look at the language here. Your grief will be turned into joy. Jesus is promising, literally, transformation. How is that possible? He's saying that the thing that causes you pain will be turned into a source of joy. What? Have you experienced that? What is most heartbreaking and shattering can be the very place where living water springs up. Death can be turned into life. Many of you know that to be true. Some of the worst situations in your life, the biggest pains in your life, have done things that nothing else could do, have been a source of life. Painful, hard, overwhelming, debilitating. But in the hands of God, grief can be transformed into joy. I'll tell you, I've experienced this more than once. Pain that seems limitless and unbearable becomes the very place that God uses to bring unimaginable blessings. Pain I would have never chosen, pain I did everything to try to avoid, is the very thing God brings because God wants to bring life in it and through it. An ending that brings a miraculous new beginning. Have you seen that? In all of it, as you walk by faith down those paths, what you will get is a sense of the greatness of God's power and the relentlessness of His goodness. 
that God is overwhelmingly great and unstoppably good. Have you tasted that? Do you know the way you taste that? By going into suffering and weeping and sorrowing and being overwhelmed by grief and watching Him turn it to joy. If you've never done it, He invites you to it. Only God can do that. Your greatest sorrow turned into joy. He's not saying God causes your sorrow. He's not saying that. But what He's saying is God is bigger than any trial, any betrayal, any mistreatment, any hardship, your grief will turn to joy. The very thing that has been the cause of your suffering will be transformed by Almighty God into God-sent joy. And what he's talking about here, he gives examples, but there's many examples in the New Testament about that very idea. Think about the death of Christ. Sorrow, the very thing that brought sorrow, is transformed into joy. The leaving of our Savior from this world to heaven. The sorrow of the disciples of what do we do now is the, what Jesus says, the reason for joy because when I go, the Spirit will come. We looked at that last week. It's better for you that I go so that the Spirit will come. Even some of the worst things that have happened in your life, sin in your life, sin done against you and sin that you've chosen, can that be turned into joy? Here's what I'll tell you. Until you're convinced about the hopelessness of finding life in this life, you'll never turn to find life where you really can find it. If the option is you can figure it out on your own, you'll figure it out on your own. And so it's interesting because God says He gave us the law in the Old Testament to make sin more abundant. Why would God do that? Because we need to be convinced that we didn't, it wasn't just a matter of knowing right from wrong. It was a matter of knowing where life comes from. And so even my sin can be a place where God brings it and uses it and transforms it into an invitation, an opportunity. If God can take death and bring life, if He can use my sin to draw me into salvation, what can He do with the pains in your life? If you've seen His work, you know. So something came to an end that you didn't want to end. What can God do in that? The door closed and you didn't want it to close. What can God do in that? I'm bleeding and I'm hurt and I can't, don't think I'll survive. What can God do with that? If you'll trust Him. Jesus gives an everyday example. Pick it up with me. Verse 21 down to verse 24. He talks about this so that they can understand. He talks about it in a way that I think all of us can understand. Here's what He says, verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Jesus talks about the pain of labor, about a a woman in childbirth. And, And when he talks about the pain of labor, context, he's talking about the pain of labor before like epidurals and modern anesthesia. Yeah, pain, pain. 
And this is a pain that is almost universally familiar. In other words, everybody gets the idea that this is overwhelming pain. Because this is not like, oh, I've never seen or never had somebody who who had a child. Everybody you know has had children. You know what I mean? so, So this is a universal thing. And what he says is, consider that. Consider the pain of labor. And see that the very event that caused pain will be the cause for indescribable joy. The source of your pain is transformed into unending, overwhelming, indescribable joy. And he says she forgets the anguish when the baby is born. The pain has produced something more and the pain fades away. He doesn't say she never experienced the pain, but he says she endures it and she's glad she did and she almost never thinks about it again. Now, I know some of your moms are like, I was in labor with you for... So you know that's just a mechanism and a tool, right? That's just a... She's just getting leverage on you. She doesn't think about all the pain when she thinks about you. She thinks about the joy of you. That's what we do. Because something so much better makes the pain fade away. It's not that you don't experience the pain or the pain's not overwhelming, but the payoff is so much greater. In Romans 8, Paul says this, I consider the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory about to be revealed in us. Do you believe that? That whatever you're under, whatever's going on, whatever's hitting you, is nothing compared to what you're about to receive. What you're about to experience, what you're about to get. Jesus says, so it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but not forever. So it is with you. Pain is temporary, and pain is transformed in the hands of Almighty God into a source of great joy. Is that true with you? Are you convinced that He does that? Do you believe that He wants to? Is your grief going to turn into your rejoicing? When it does, Jesus says it will last. No one will take your joy away. Hugely important that you get this. No one can take your joy away. God-given joy is your responsibility and under your power. No one can take that away. We surrender it all the time because we go, oh, there's those lights again. But God-given joy in the midst of pain and suffering is yours to have and yours to hold from now on. Jesus says, in that day, you won't ask me anything. In that day, you will ask my Father and He'll give you whatever He wants. Another clue about what Jesus is talking about. In that day, when when your joy is permanent, think about that. When your joy is permanent, when no one takes it away from you, when you have joy and it never has to go away, He says this, you're going to ask the Father things and He will give you whatever you want. You're going to go to the Father in my name, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. In my name, meaning on my behalf, for my cause, right? For for the things that matter to me. You're going to go on my behalf to the Father and ask for things and He will give it to you. So what time zone is He talking about? He's not talking about the the three days between death and resurrection, He's not talking about, you know, when I get to heaven, then my joy will be complete. Then, I'll, then no one will take my joy away. He's talking about 
after the Spirit comes. I'm going to go away, but then you're going to see me again. See me again, meaning the Spirit's going to come and reveal me to you. I'm going to be alive in your life. You're going to see me at work in your life. And during that time, you're going to be asking the Father things. And the Father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. And your joy will be complete. Ask and you will receive. And your joy will be complete. He's saying you're going to have lasting joy while you live this life. So the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after Jesus' ascension. Jesus said, when that happens, you have the opportunity to have joy that will be complete because you can ask whatever in, the, in my name and it will happen. What happens in their lives as disciples from there? Everything's good? They got like mansions on top of hills and servants to, and all the food that they want. And... No, they start dying. Horrible deaths. They begin to be persecuted and thrown out and criticized and threatened. You ask whatever you want. My Father will give it to you, and your joy will be complete. We tend to think about joy someday, way out there. I would say to you, don't abdicate your birthright like that. He has come so that my sorrow, even in my sorrow, I can have joy. It's not balancing grief against joy. There's a little grief, there's a little joy. It's knowing that my grief will be turned into joy. Doesn't James say the same thing in James 1? My brothers, consider it pure joy when you get what you want. When you fall into trials of many kinds, because that trial works patience, perseverance, builds character inside of you. Consider it pure joy. Know that what I suffer today is for good and not for harm. And so, making a plea to you on behalf of Jesus today. Will you be blinded by the light of your trial? Will that erase everything else out? Will that shake your faith and erode it away? Will you choose to believe that my grief, my sorrow, my pain will be turned into joy in the hands of God? that that joy can never be taken away from me. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a pretty familiar verse. If I say that reference, a lot of you already know the verse in your head. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you, right? Not to harm you. Plans for a hope and a future. Do you know who that was written to? I mean, that was written to me. Yeah, I, I get to, Okay. But do you know who it actually was written to? The prophet Jeremiah? A bunch of people from the nation of Israel who had sinned so much that God had taken them and ripped them away from their homes and their possessions and their independence and their freedom and turned them essentially into slaves in a foreign land. Because suffering was going on in their lives, the prophet Jeremiah, on behalf of God, comes to them and says, just because of what you see, you might be convinced that I don't like you anymore. That this is the end for you. But I want you to know this is not the end. In the middle of suffering, God sends the prophet to say to them, I know the plans I have for you. 
And so in a very legit way, you can take that to heart. If you're in the middle of suffering, even suffering because of your own choices, you can take God's words in Jeremiah 29, 11 to heart. And if you will believe them, if that will be a living faith, you watch him change your struggle into victory. You watch him turn your sorrow into joy. What will you do? I don't know everybody here today. I don't know if you know Jesus or not. I don't know if you've crossed that line of faith or not. But this is the invitation he gives you. You're going to have sorrow in this life. You're going to have pain. You're going to have struggle. You're going to blow it. You're going to mess up. The choice you have is not whether you can be good enough or perfect enough. The choice you have is this. Whether you want to go through sorrow and just let it be whatever it is, or if you want to come to a God who loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. If you want to entrust your life to Him, and He says, even in your sorrow, I will turn it into joy. Maybe you're already a child of God. Do you believe that no trial can ever swallow you up? Do you believe that you will never be overwhelmed? That it is impossible for suffering to consume you? Because all that awaits is deliverance. Do you live with unshakable hope like that? I would say to you today, if you're in the midst of a very dark time, believe this. What you're experiencing, what is causing you to mourn and weep and be filled with grief is not the end. No matter how dark it is, no matter how unbearable the pain, no matter how much destruction and devastation is in you and around you, this is not the end. Because you belong to a God who redeems. And that God never fails, ever. And whatever you bring to Him, whatever the mess is, if you will give it to Him, it might hurt, but it will bring you joy because He will turn your grief into joy. I invite you this week to take all the junk of life and watch Him transform it. I invite you to bring it to Him, put it at His feet and say, I'm trusting you. I'm not going to get stuck in thinking about how horrible, how awful, how painful, how, how difficult all this is. Because that's just getting blinded by the lights. I'm going to look past the lights and I'm going to see God at work beyond the pain. Will you do that? Let's close in a word of prayer. Yeah, you can stand. And as you do, let's just let that ruminate in your head for a second. Before we go out of here, you're going to go out, you're going to hit the ground running. It's kind of like merging into the fast lane. I get it. But pain should always be a reminder of this truth. And I wish I had it in your pocket to go with you, but put it in your mind. My grief will be turned to joy. Claim that promise and let's live it in our hearts and our souls. Let's pray together. Father, these words from your son on a night that was unspeakably tragic. 24 hours were about to unfold in the most horrific way. And so he speaks these words of promise. And if they applied to the death of your son, how can they not apply to the struggle in my life? Father, I pray you would give us faith to trust you as we face the difficulties, the pain of this life. Father, release us from the bonds of believing that that pain is 
what we're destined for, what we're doomed to experience, and that there's nothing we can do about it, and it's meaningless and pointless, and it's just misery. Father, fill us with hope because of faith, because our God is a great God, and because His goodness is unstoppable. And Father, I pray that as we go from this place, that that truth will make your glory shine brightly in our lives. That we would be people who trust you even when things fall apart, even when we blow it, even when other people do the wrong thing. Father, that we would be absolutely grounded in this truth in our lives. Do that work by your spirit, I pray. Pour it out into our lives. Take us from this place as people who are stronger in what we believe than ever before. Father, help our faith to be in you and you alone. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.